just a moment. Just invite you to give your heart to the Lord in a response of gratitude to something it seems so simple to say, but it's so powerful in Scripture that a part of singing his praises is to create a space where our heart, mind, attention is put in a zone of total focus on the magnitude of God's holy character. So there's a great value in personalizing the words of Psalm 46.10, where the Bible says, Be still and know that I am God. We'll do that a moment here. Just some stillness, some quiet with the Lord. Amen. Amen. He's good. Amen. We take just a moment. I want to highlight one quick announcement. Then I'm going to we're going to just greet for a moment here and again welcome each other. It's so good to be able to see you and to crisscross quickly and then our then we'll have our children's classes go Pathfinders and Explorers. Thanks to all the teachers, coordinators, leaders. We're grateful for each of you. Um, one reminder announcement for all the guys got your email and if you missed the, an email from me about it, please tell me. I'd like to be sure you get them in the future. We're starting a men's group on Tuesday nights for six consecutive weeks starting on March the 8th, and the first week is Come Hungry at 6.30, Pizza Party Fellowship for the guys. Then we start this uh, introductory time um, that we're calling Rough Edges for the Radical Gospel, and uh, we want to invite each of you guys to be a part of it. We'll meet down in the fellowship hall part of the building, and we um, welcome you to come. We're going to have good food and fellowship, 6.30 to 7, then a time to launch this, uh, this group. I was just thinking the other day as we started to confirm this that uh, it was three years ago now that uh, David Berry led us in a in about a nine was a nine or ten week I think uh, Bible study group in in the spring and it just hit me again how much I'm sure you all feel this way about these last two years since the March of 2020 so many things it just seemed like they just or almost disoriented and so I'm so glad we can do this again together but in a new season and um, as the Old uh, philosopher of Greece said many hundreds of years ago, "You never, no man ever steps into the same river twice. So in many ways, we're stepping into some new times in all of our lives. And uh, for the guys here at Liberty Church, we want to launch into this season together to get into the word, but to share and connect one with another. And welcome friends, by the way, too. As I've said, this is an open group for anybody that would like to come. March the 8th at 6.30 p.m., would you take a moment and greet uh, those around you to welcome them uh, briefly as we get ready for our kids to go to their classes, and you teachers can be ready to go now. And Josiah, Jonathan, thank you so much. Brothers, brothers blessing the body, I love it. Thank you, thank you.
<laughs> okay, it's time now for uh, Pathfinders. They're going back with Miss Becky for your time together. Getting into Isaiah 12 back there today. Hallelujah. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. <laughs> Boys and girls and Pathfinders. And then the Explorers class right down the hallway into the fellowship space. And uh, that's so good. All right. Now, I invite you as well today. Open your Bible. And um, we welcome you. As I invite you to open your Bible to the fourth chapter of Philippians, we, we come back to a section that we began to look into yesterday, last week about this time in Scripture, this passage of Philippians chapter 4, contains some very essential ingredients for stilling our hearts in a time of turmoil. And I'd like to ask you to think about it in this way. With your Bible open to Philippians chapter 4, I'm going to read a section of this from the New American Standard translation. It may be a little different than what you brought in today, so just track it in your own Bible. Or if you didn't bring one today, there's a Bible in the pew there available, and that's a New King James translation. Philippians chapter 4, I want to pick up where we left off last Sunday in the flow of this passage, uh, and then we want to look at three elements of how we pivot into the peace of God. The peace of God, identified in verse 9 as a very essential element, attributes of God, part of the richness and fullness of how we know him. He's referred to in verse 9 as the God of peace. And then the great, wonderful classic verse, the promise that is so well known and beloved by most Everyone in the body of Christ, I'm sure, in verse 7, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Last Sunday, we talked about the fact that that word, to guard there, is a word that conveys the imagery of a person who is under pressure, being surrounded by armed guards or a sentinel. So some translations will even bring that out, that the peace of God is a sentinel around your hearts and your minds. So as you look at your Bible, if you'd look at the third verse of Philippians 4, I'm going to read this in the New American Standard down through verse 11. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let's say that one again aloud together as we did last week. Say it with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then verse 5, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good reputation, honorable, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Archibald Hart wrote a very helpful book 25 or so years ago with a pretty mundane title. It was called 15 Principles to Achieve Happiness. I talked to you last week about um, a biblical view of happiness that we might draw from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, and that view of happiness from last Sunday contains the understanding that Ultimately, God's goal for all of us is far greater than what we think of as happiness. God's goal is holiness. Amen? And so we saw last week that Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. The Lord Jesus modeled that principle in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Clearly, when Jesus spoke of that kind of perfection, the Greek term means a fullness, a wholeness, a completeness. And the Lord Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, was giving us the the pattern of what the grace of God that we just sang about, as Josiah led us, Jesus was giving us the pattern of what the grace of God will be producing in us, not through human effort, but through recognizing the death of the old nature when we receive Christ as Lord, and the living power of the new nature, Christ in you, the hope of glory, So that there is a pursuit of holiness that is preeminent over every other issue in life. And it's a pursuit of holiness that is made possible because of the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of the redeemed. And yet we might ask, as we again looked at this last week, where does happiness come in there? (laughs) Because the natural instinct of humanity is to pursue happiness. It's in the Declaration of Independence, isn't it? The pursuit of happiness. It's clear from even the days of the founders of this republic that uh, their understanding of that word happiness, as profound and as uh, iconic as it is in that great timeless and priceless document, that the founders understood something far larger, far more comprehensive, far more holistic when they used these words, pursuit of happiness. It was not just a flippant, self-centered view. It was an understanding in the larger picture of how God has fashioned humanity that, yes, indeed, there is a legitimate yearning for lasting happiness in the hearts of every human being. And when we understand how these things align, God's purpose that we've been conformed to the image of Jesus, 
but a genuine love of life, a lightheartedness we've been talking about this month. Lighthearted living we talked about two weeks ago. Last week our focus was really on lighthearted relationships, and we see in the fourth chapter of Philippians the Apostle Paul and his interactions with, with uh, the various people that we highlighted last week, and then in this section, we focus on light-hearted thinking, because if you would look in your text at the word peace in verse 7, the peace that surpasses all understanding, and then in the 8th verse, look at the conclusion of the apostle's list of virtues, and note that he says, think on these things, dwell upon these things. When we put these together, we see that here in this section where Paul concludes by talking about, in his own experience, he's learned to find a contentment, a genuine happiness that is God-given, fully developed, because it isn't a self-centered happiness, and yet it doesn't eliminate the human basic need to know that you are loved, to have a defining sense of purpose, and to enjoy life. And that's why, again, as a parallel passage, 1 Peter 3, 9 speaks of he that would love, he that loves life and would see good days. Let him keep his tongue from speaking evil and his lips from speaking deceitfully. So we know in Scripture there's a wonderful truth of how God brings about a genuine kind of happiness. And understanding that is a part of Paul's purpose here because I believe what Paul does in this passage is what Dr. Archibald Hart touches on in a section I want to share with you from 15 Principles to Achieve Happiness, just a, a, a book of great insights anchored in Scripture. And it is because the Apostle Paul is dealing in Philippians 4 with the real world of the souls of people, their relationships, their problems, their stresses, their inner conflicts, their fears, the total landscape of life that is just as real and relevant today in February 20th of 2022 in all of our lives as it was when these words first flowed from the pen of the Apostle Paul. First, we know that the promise of God is an anchor for your soul. Verse 7, read it again, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the list of virtues upon which we can dwell and think in verse 8. And the example of the Apostle Paul's life himself. And the promise of the God of peace dwelling with you. All of these truths address that which concerns all of us as creatures who are going to live forever. When C.S. Lewis was asked about the role of a congregational experience in his life, one of the things he pointed out that was a value, again, often missed today, is that a true Christ-centered congregational life 
is centered on more than just meeting human needs, but it is centered on the eternal dimension. And we saw last week Paul references this in Philippians 3.20 when he says our citizenship is in eternity. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await the Savior who by the power by which he conforms all things to his purpose will ultimately even work these bodies into a glorious replica, a glorious uh, new body. So the apostle refers to eternity and eternal issues in several points in this passage in a way to show us that the kind of happiness that is truly God-endowed happiness is a happiness that flourishes when we understand that God's eternal purpose far surpasses what we can see with our eyes, with our five senses, and perceive. And when C.S. Lewis talked about that, he referred to congregational life as being a place where God's people journey together, where the word of God touches hearts and lives in such a way that we're equipped by the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God, we are equipped for that which concerns us as creatures who are going to live forever. When that comes together then, we can see even more, I think, why the, the, the calling in these verses is to a, a light-heartedness, a, a kind of a bright and expectant view of God's goodness in our lives that is accented even more powerfully in Philippians 4 precisely because we know that these words were being written by the Apostle Paul when he was under house arrest, confined to his place of temporary waiting for an appeal to Caesar. In fact, it's the last few verses of the book of Acts where Paul was sitting when he was writing these words. His circumstances, in other words, were not ideal. In fact, the, the imprisonment, this imprisonment, was less onerous even than his later imprisonments, which were quite brutal. In either case, the apostle could look back in verse 11, 12, and 13 and say, I've learned in all kinds of circumstances. In verse 12, he says, I've learned to be reasonably comfortable, and I've learned to be uncomfortable. I've learned to be in fairly prosperous circumstances, maybe more, more money in the, in the kitty than, than I needed immediately, and I've been in times where I wasn't quite sure where the money was going to come from. I've learned how to abound, and I've learned how to be abased. Paul was saying, now I've learned not that all of those circumstances are equally desirable by no means. I've learned in all circumstances to be content. He's echoing a healthy perspective that I think is beautifully reflected in Proverbs 15.30. And I think it's why the Apostle's letter and these, these timeless words of verse 7, 6 and 7, especially the, the great promise of how we pray, why we pray, bring your request to God. It helps us realize the, the lightheartedness of a living, growing relationship with God. But we have to ask the question, how to pivot into this? I love the way Proverbs 15.30 describes 
the kind of messenger that Paul was to these people, and by extension, the kind of messengers we can be. A great goal for today would be to leave this place with a light in your eyes of expectancy of a grace-empowered happiness that you can bless others with. Light in a messenger's eyes bring joy to the heart. And good news gives health to the bones. Good news contributes to a healthy, a, a healthy view of life in which we can begin to understand maybe some of the stress points for all of us where we begin to lose that peace. Now, clearly, in so many ways, we all know that we're vulnerable to losing our peace or for our peace to become tangled up in a whole myriad of anxious thoughts. In fact, to, 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 to even touch on this opens a whole realm of points of anxiety in so many people's lives. The Apostle Paul is giving us grace-empowered truth here to have a lively, expectant view of God's gifts in other people and his guarantee of peace. Now, let's backtrack a moment and think about this as well, how he relates it to the other people, because, again, a messenger of peace is someone, a messenger of good news is someone who is carrying this, uh, this, this life-giving capacity for a peacefulness in very adverse circumstances. And I invite you today to be a part of a people who specialize in bringing genuine peace. Peace, not the absence of difficulty, not the absence of conflict. Peace, not the absence of noise. Peace, not the absence of distractions. No, but a peace that is like a, like, like a mother bird hovering over its chicks in a nest, nestled into the crevice of a rock when a great storm is passing over and the lightning is flashing and the winds are, 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 are howling and the rain is blowing in, and yet that mother bird and her little chicks are secure. God's peace is a stillness in the midst of. Paul's happiness was a contentment in the midst of. This is the power of this truth. So when we reach back into that third verse, I want you to notice, just backtracking a bit there, in Philippians 4.3, that he said, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, clearly reflecting also how much happiness is connected with honoring people in the right way for who they are. But again, on that eternal dimension note, I'm struck by two parts of verse 3 and 5. And I want to highlight them here because, again, in every part of this promise of peace, the peace that you can pivot into by the grace of God, in every part of it, there is an eternal dimension. In every part of it, it's because we were designed to live forever. And yet we're citizens in terra firma. And here in verse 5, verse 3 and verse 5, in both cases, in almost what feels in the text like a, like a kind of a um, poetic 
tangent, Paul adds an element of the eternal. Look at it. He says, the rest, along with the, the women who shared with me in my struggle in the cause of the gospel, then he says, and they were with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You get the sense when Paul is writing these epistles that in even the most practical and uh, personal and applicable parts of the text that his instinct is immediately to like open a window from eternity with sunlight streaming in onto the manuscript because it is the eternal hope. It is what the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews spoke about in chapter 13, verse 14 of that epistle when he said, we here in this society do not have a continuing city, but we seek the one to come. We seek the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And a healthy church has got to be a place where people know that as we go to the word of God for the practical answers in all of our lives, that on every page there's the, there's the shine of that eternal sunlight bursting through the darkness of the world that we live in. Paul thinks of his fellow workers there in the communities, the congregations in Philippi, and he says, their names are written in the book of life. And then in that fifth verse, right after he talks about this gentle attitude that we want to look at, he says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Why should I have a word here in verse 5 that, again, I want to focus here a bit on because it's often misunderstood. It's quite intriguing. In fact, if you look at your text, you'll see that it says, many translations will say, let your moderation be known to all men. Some will say your gentleness. Some say gentle spirit. And one of the reasons for the very translation of that single word in Philippians 4, 5, is that it is a Greek word that does not occur in classical Greek. And it is a unique word one writer speculating just a little bit, but I think it's plausible, that the Apostle Paul may have coined this word for the very purpose of describing something that the translators all struggle to convey. Gentleness is good, but it doesn't convey every part of this. The word conveys a capacity to deal with very difficult situations and people and remain Calm and reasonable. And it is why one English critic of about, uh, oh, 80 years ago by the name of Matthew Arnold translated the passage for himself, and he came out with this translation, which is quite intriguing. Matthew Arnold translated Philippians 4, 5 like this. Let your sweet reasonable reasonableness, <laughs> that's a mouthful, let your sweet reasonableness be manifested to all men. In our current climate, with social media often feeling like a war zone with crossfire and cannonballs and rockets from all directions, isn't it striking that 2,000 years ago, in an epistle to the Philippian believers, that the apostle said, one way that you'll need to guard your heart to keep your peace is if you remember, let me put it this way, that following Jesus and honoring Christ, even in the midst of very 
complicated situations means you'll be reasonable. You will have a character that enables you to bridge gaps, to bring people together. And that can only be done, as we think of these principles that are implied there, with a general, with a gentle attitude, with a, a magnanimity, a, a largeness of spirit. I think of it as a strong current of openness to others that flows out of this rejoicing in Christ of verse 4. And again, Dr. Archibald Hart makes a great point about expectations. One of the reasons that we have so many obstacles to our peace is that our expectations about others can often tangle up our thoughts in ways that diminish our peace. When we think about the things of God, when we embrace that uh, calling of Romans 12, 2 for our minds to be renewed, Dr. Hart puts this in perspective in light of expectations. He says these truths about God's peace are very comforting. On the other hand, because I am the sum total of how and what I think, then by shaping my thoughts, I can begin to shape my character so that it can become whatever I want it to be. I cannot just leave it to chance that my mind will become whatever it needs to become. I can shape and form it by discipline, giving it the direction it requires to become a generator of thoughts that will both please God and create a healthier mind. However, our expectations are often the obstacle to this. Our expectations, good or bad, are the product of our thinking. They're created, they're shaped, they're evaluated by our minds. We're creating expectations unconsciously as we go through our day. And that means, according to verse 8 of Philippians 4, where he tells us to think on certain things, that if expectations come from our thinking, then unreasonable expectations also come from misguided thinking. Too often we go about our thinking without ever stopping to examine our thoughts. We would never allow a gas station attendant to put water in our gasoline tank. We know it would foul up the engine. Yet we pay little attention to what we pour into our minds and the foul-ups that we create there. So Paul is now relating this lightheartedness of life in verse 5, to a generous spirit that can be cultivated. But when we get to that heart of that verse 6, I want to ask you to think about three aspects of this entire passage that I think can be a takeaway for you to pivot into peace. The first one is pinpoint your issue. I think of this uh, dilemma that Paul highlights in verse 6 as anxiety junction. We come to a place where maybe you've been just walking along fine. Have you ever been, have you ever waked up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden something starts bothering you and, and you're, now your mind is going somewhere 
that's creating anxiety. How many of you ever feel some anxiety when you wake up in the middle of the night? Okay. Now, anxiety is a fascinating thing to talk about here because it's a mistake to just simply say or think that one can just zap all anxiety in an instant. We know that's not true. It's such an important topic to address because the Apostle Paul realized when he said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Paul was arming us with a capacity to recognize where we're vulnerable. And when anxiety comes flooding in, to realize it's human, it's understandable, it's real, but the grace of God empowers you to be confident that you can move into a secure peace. This is so wonderful because the text gives us the assurance of something that is priceless in all of our lives and pictured throughout the Bible, and it's what I call an active and accessible refuge in God's peace. The um, Puritan writer Jeremiah Burroughs back in the early 18th century, wrote about many aspects of intimacy with God and experiencing God's grace on the human level. And he once referred to this peace of God in a manner like pouring wine, in his case was the liquid that he chose. I didn't bring the wine today, by the way. But he talked about wine, and he talked about a, a vessel that someone's hand is shaking. And they're trying to pour into that shaky vessel. By the way, this is H2O. And Jeremiah Burroughs simply said that in Philippians 4, 7, that the peace of God that passes understanding is the Lord's way of telling you that when you pivot to him, and present your petition to God, still your soul. Because Almighty God wants to pour his grace, his assurance, his strength, his resources into you. But his point was that it takes some time still that shaky vessel and Philippians 4 7 is telling us how it is stilled in fact he doesn't just say pray he says by prayer what does he say there by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known unto God two things are very striking there one is the specifics of this. Pinpoint the issue. What is the issue that is provoking anxious thoughts in me right now? Sometimes it's not the thing immediately that we're worried about. It's that circumstance is revealing an insecurity, a fear. Will they like me? Will they accept me? What's going to happen if this doesn't go right? What's going to turn out this way? How am I going to handle my disappointment? What if they're speaking against me, imagining things, paranoia? There are all kinds of human problems that can be magnified by anxiety. 
You could say that anxiety is an amplifier of totally imaginary hypotheses. Hypothetically, all kinds of things can happen. Warren Wiersbe, the uh, noted uh, pastor and speaker for many years on Back to the Bible, used to say that that 90% of the things that we worry about never come to pass. Have you ever caught yourself worrying about something for a little while and then suddenly realize it's really unlikely? It's really unlikely at, at, at best. And, and that even if it happens, your heavenly Father, Matthew 6.32 says, knows what you have need of before you ask him. So I believe the text is telling us to pinpoint the issue. What am I anxious about right now? Secondly, present your request to the Lord. Now, we read over these things so quickly sometimes that I think we, we just it all blurs together into a kind of a mush. And it's really crucial to see that in verse 6 of Philippians 4, Paul is saying, be specific about your request and bring that petition to the Lord. There is a place in prayer for saying, stopping everything around you and getting specific and getting serious and putting it into words, your own words, not some preacher's words, not some fancy words, not religious words, not comparing yourself to how somebody else prays. No, be you, be yourself. The whole point of the text is let those inner anxieties come out. In fact, it's quite striking that the language itself is in a passive voice. Look at the end of verse 6. Let your requests be made known to God. It's, it's a, in other words, it almost is like, if you ever think about it, like a beach ball in a swimming pool, and you push the beach ball down under the water, hold it under, let go of the beach ball that comes up. It's like anxiety gets inside, and it's like that beach ball inside of your mind. And our tendency could be, if we're denying reality, or if we're trying hard not to worry, sometimes it's just to suppress that. Try not to think about it. But verse 6 is actually saying, let that underlying anxiety, let it out. But don't let it out in anguish and take out your irritation on your spouse when you get home from work. Or, or let it out in some other way. No, let it come to God. It's almost as if text is saying, there are things inside of you that are yearning to get to God. Now let them go. Let them go. Let them go as you enter that refuge. And then, of course, as we understand that, we realize that the apostle, again, addressing people who are going to live forever, that the apostle is aiming at bringing us God's provision to prevent damage to our soul. I like the way that Arthur Roche described the impact of worry over a period of time in the human mind. Worry runs like a thin stream trickling through the mind. Over time, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. The same word, if you look at that text in verse 6, and quickly, though we don't have time to open it in our text copies, but you might want to look at Matthew 6.25, the same word appears in Matthew 6.25 here, for Paul's word for anxiety. In Matthew 6.25, Jesus explains it like this, don't be anxious about tomorrow. 
the, the old, the King James Bible that many people became accustomed to, I sure did, in my early walk with God, the King James Bible says, take no thought for tomorrow. And uh, of course, that older English didn't convey fully the meaning of this word. It, it's the word um, that marimno, marimnua, that combines two Greek words, two Greek concepts. One of them, nous, N-O-U-S, is the word for mind. And throughout the New Testament, it refers far more to than just thought. It is that total perspective of living. It is what Paul says in Romans 12 too, that the mind can be renewed, be transformed by the renewing of the mind. And he uses the illustration there of a chrysalis, the transformation, metamorphosis, just like a butterfly emerging from a cocoon, the new life in Christ emerges as our thoughts and mind is experiencing renewal. Well, this word, though, reveals why worry weighs so much. Why is worry so heavy? Why is worry such a problem? Why is addressing worry at the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount, halfway between the Beatitudes and the parable of the wise and foolish builders? It's the heart of the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus knew that our tendency to get tangled into anxiety is one of the great spiritual obstacles to our growth as followers of Jesus. It's why in the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8 that Jesus described seed falling on the ground beginning to grow up in the third type of soil and it looks like that crop is doing well but thorns begin to grow around it and choke out its life. And Jesus said those thorns are the cares, the anxieties of this life. Paul says it in Philippians 4, 6, when you're anxious, first don't condemn yourself for being anxious. Don't get tangled up in this double-mindedness, the divided mind. But he leaves us with a great prescription in verse 8. We go into the place of prayer in verse 7. We bring our request to God. We still ourselves. We still that shaky cup. We get still before God. We wait upon the Lord who promises to renew your strength. And then, it is not as if we are to just float aimlessly. God in his grace gives us here eight actual examples. It's not a, an exhaustive list, but it's eight examples of the kinds of things that bring a lightheartedness to life. What does he say in verse 8? He says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is admirable, if there's anything excellent, worthy of praise, these are the things to think about. Now, I think of it like this, that it's redirecting our thoughts. It's redirecting our thinking. So when we think about the, the three crucial choices at Anxiety Junction, we pinpoint the issue that's bringing us anxiety, we turn that into a specific prayer. And know God the Father welcomes your petition. It is his design and desire that you be specific with God. You'll always find your heavenly Father's gracious listening ear. And then to still yourself. 
in his magnificent presence. Even avoiding the, te- the temptation and the trap that's so real in our culture that we're always looking for feelings. Ah, abandon that. Stop looking for feelings. Feelings can come in times that suddenly you know you have a sense about something, but you're not bound to emotions. You're not making an idol out of your emotions. You're realizing that the God who created you and designed you to have a living relationship with him doesn't need to manifest himself in your feelings. And in fact, if he did, it would be diminishing the magnitude of who he is. Sometimes in the absence of feelings, we are most aware of how needy we are. God, you are my source. In the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, he said, Father, glorify me with the glory that we had before the beginning. For this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Jesus himself magnified the value of knowing the Father. And Paul magnifies it by calling it a place of peace. And then he equips us with these things to think about. Could you say the last four words on that, in that screen there? Think on these things. Now, here we have a beautiful way to grasp together that God is equipping you in grace. No action listed here is something we could do in our own power. But because of who Christ is, because he fashioned you to be a redeemed child of God and to live forever, you can kind of take it with you. Seven things that he emphasizes are actions that we're empowered to do. We're to keep rejoicing. We are to actively accept others' limitations. That sweet reasonableness. Present your request to God. Can you do that? How many of you can do this? Amen. Can you say, wave at me. I can do this. Say, I can do this. And then verse 8, think. And the goal there is to realize God has empowered us to redirect our thinking. Doesn't mean it works flawlessly every time. You'll stumble. You'll fail. You'll have setbacks. Sure. But these powerful truths are equipping you to win your war. Paul speaks of observing everything that happened in his life and applying it to yourself. He speaks of learning from experience in verse 11 to be content. And then, I like like the whole summation. I think of it as pursuing his peace. When Paul said, I can do, say it with me, I can do, three words, let's say it again, I can do, all things through Christ who strengthens me. Heavenly Father, I pray today that there may be, as we lift our voices to sing, before going out into this beautiful day, I pray that you would bring a lightheartedness in the thinking of your people and that we could value anew what you've equipped us to do. And that is for these thoughts, these minds, to be set apart and placed in a training zone where we understand that though our humanity creeps in and we certainly struggle in so many ways, 
It is because of your awesome grace that you empower us to step back into the race and to pivot into that place of peace because it is anchored in our conquering risen king, the Lord Jesus. Can you say once again, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen.